welcome to the Pillars of Health podcast with resident strength coach, John Carroll. The Pillars of Health is on a quest to help you gain insight into the best ways you can manage stress, sleep, exercise, and nutrition in order to live your best life. Stay up to date with the Pillars of Health podcast by checking out our Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as CoachJohnCarroll.com. Welcome to the Pillars of Health podcast with me, John Carroll. Today I'm catching up with strength coach Dan McGinley, and he's also a world traveler these days. Welcome, Dan. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem at all. Excited to catch up. Absolutely. It's been a while. I know. You have a, a trip to China and all these vast experiences going on? Yes, yes. So, excited to uh, kind of delve into that a little bit. But, uh, yeah, just real quick, before we get into the icebreaker question, let's uh, let's get a little background on you, Dan, and kind of fill everybody in on, on what you do, etc. Yeah, so um, I am a strength conditioning coach at Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning, and I've been there for five years now. Just kind of a little bit of background on how I got into that. I actually started, you know, probably like a lot of people got into this around high school, started training really to keep up my older brother, Joe, who's three years older than me. So I started, you know, training in high school and played some sports, was a very mediocre athlete, I would say. But that that really got me interested in the weight room and, and I fell in love with it from there. And then went to college initially as an education major so I was thinking about teaching and from there that led me into phys ed and and gradually from there I I started to realize I I liked and really loved the the training aspect more than you know the phys the the traditional phys ed route so became an exercise science major and uh did a couple internships from there was at Boston College, went to Boston University. One thing led to another. I ended up interning at, at Mike's place, uh, where I actually met you and Aaron. That's correct. And um, and yeah, I've been there ever since. It's taken me all over the world, all around the country. I'm working with the certified functional strength coach as well. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Looking back on, on our time at MBSC, it seems like a long time ago. It was yeah, a long time ago. No, no, it is. Yeah, five, over five years, right? Over five, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that was a great time. I, I thoroughly enjoyed everything that I learned there and just the experience with, with a bunch of great coaches, yeah. There was, yeah. It was uh, it was great being the same intern class as you and Aaron and kind of saw it, saw it all start from there. And, uh, and yeah, it's cool to... It's cool to keep in touch and see, you know, see all the things you guys have done as well. Right, right. It is. And it's like everybody that we kind of met through Boils and who we came across in their time there, you can kind of see how they've, you know, expanded their own careers. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So icebreaker question today, Dan, a little different. I'm going to ask you, what are your favorite training shoes? But for us, the strength coaches, like, what's your favorite shoe? Because we're always on our feet. So it's what, true. Yeah. What's what's your go to? Something light. So right now I have – so we're sponsored by Adidas, at, right. which you know, at, at MBSC. So we have to wear Adidas. But the the difference between the really light, almost Nike-free material yeah. – I'm not sure what they're called. I have them lying around here somewhere. But between those and the really stiff, bulky, high-heeled shoes that, that we get from time to time is, is huge, especially, like you said, being on your feet for – 12 to sometimes 14 hours a day yeah it's just it makes all the difference in the world but i would say preference barefoot you know i try to train just in socks as much as i can and that's not always acceptable when you're you're on the floor coaching but right you know sometimes in between groups or in between clients i'll i'll go in the office and just immediately kick kick off shoes it's one of the first things i do yeah it's actually really satisfying (laughs) it is it is it feels great recently i've been going down the asics route like some gt 2000 stuff like this like pri approved shoes and i've got to say i've been getting a lot of flack from uh my colleague derek uh he's like just go ahead get it over with buy the diabetes socks and move to florida you know? that's right that's right the asics the classic old man dad shoe they are it's like dad shoes like hallmark right there <laughs> i love it 
All right, so we're going to get into uh, your trip to China and basically everything that went with that. And let's uh, let's just start off with first of all how that came about, Dan. Yeah, so the the China came about. They actually contacted us at Mike Boyles, and the initial email just really I think it came out of the blue. They contacted Mike and said we have a an opening here at one of our training centers. Could I, I believe the initial conversation went something like, "Can you come?" You know, can, asking Mike if he would come to China. Right. And then from there, you know, he's it spun off. Mike said, "You know, I well, I can't physically go to China, but we may have someone interested." And that's when they started contacting. They contact me and, and asked if I would, if it would be something I was interested in. And one thing led to another, and it, it ended up being a really long process. It took. I think it took about five or six months to, from the time we started the conversations to me actually getting to China. But yeah, that's really how it came about. I think they just found us, you know, found us online really through Mike's reputation, which is yeah. is huge. Yeah. And, and and that's what got the ball rolling initially. So what were the parameters of you going out there? Like, did they say we need you out here for like six months? And were you going to coach their coaches? Yeah, so that was that was part of the deal was I was going to work with the teams that were training at the, the training facility as well as educate and, and develop the staff that was there. So there was already a strength and conditioning staff in place. Yeah, They were looking for, for a foreigner to come in and, and further develop their staff as well as basically run the, the entire strength and conditioning for the the, the training center. So it started out actually as I believe the initial conversation was eight months. Yeah. And then it gradually got pushed to 12. And then from there it ended up being 16. So it, <laughs> it gradually, gradually crept up to a longer and longer time period. But the big thing was we were training. We we're also preparing them for, the China Games, which is essentially China's version of the Olympics, that's held every every four years. It's usually the year after the Olympics. Okay. So this this was the the year after Rio. So that ended up being why it was why I was extended for for sixteen months rather than twelve. Okay. All right. So we're gonna put ourselves in your shoes for a second, and you're on the plane to China. You're heading out there. You land in China. You get off the plane. You're you're on Chinese soil. What are your first impressions? Craziness. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Literally, I remember. I'll never forget just stepping off the plane and being completely delirious because it was. Uh, I believe it's twelve hours to Beijing, twelve hour flight from Boston to Beijing, right? And then a three hour flight, two and a half or three hour flight from Beijing to Guangzhou. So, I didn't sleep a wink. You know, going in, I was super nervous, hyped up. I just left all my family, all my friends. So a lot of anxiety. Didn't sleep a wink on the plane. I get off. It's completely delirious. And I just remember it being super hot because Guangzhou is in the the southern part of China. So it was – I started there in June of 2016, and it was – it, it felt like it was 200 degrees getting off the plane and just people everywhere. You know, it was the middle of the night, late in the night, but there were people everywhere. There's cabs flying around the airport going crazy. Everybody's yeah. smoking. <laughs> and literally, I, I just, I remember getting into a cab and being like, here we go. Like, I've, I have no idea what I'm in for, but just one foot in front of the other for the next couple of months at least until I got my my feet on the ground and, and really started to get used to things. Right. And when you first landed and you were coming in, were you coming in at night? Yeah. So I, I actually landed in the middle of the night. So it was crazy because when, when we eventually got to the training center, I had to walk from the entrance to my room, which was on the, the opposite side of campus. And I couldn't really see anything. So I, it was, I couldn't really tell what was going on. I, I couldn't really figure out what was what was happening until the next morning. And it was funny because I remember, I, you know, I get to my room, I'm super tired. I basically pass out in the bed and we had uh, people come and clean our rooms once a week. 
So it just happened to be the morning that the cleaning ladies were coming. <laughs> they, they didn't know that anyone was in the room. They didn't know that I'd arrived yet. Right. So I just hear, I awake to the, the kind of the jingle of the doorknob and I hear the door open and they walk in, um, uh, you know, this foreigner is just lying in the bed <laughs> and they just, they, they yell and, and scamper out the room and I'm just like, holy crap. There Welcome we go. to China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. So from there, you're getting, you're getting settled in. What does your daily schedule look like when you're kind of initiated in? Yeah. So it was the, the training typically started at 6 a.m. They'd have 6 a.m. basically training runs around one of the tracks at the, at the facility. So there were, there were two outdoor tracks and the teams would meet at 6 a.m. It was, it was funny. They actually had loudspeakers on the end of the buildings and the loudspeakers would go off around probably 5.55. Okay. These big wailing sirens that would wake all the athletes up and they'd roll out of bed and, and meet their teams at the track. And normally it was just, they would literally jog around the track for half hour or so as, as kind of their morning training. Yeah. And I, I was eventually able to adjust that to be more of a, we would do a dynamic warm up and, and more short sprints, interval type stuff. Sometimes we do ladder drills, things like that. Yeah. Just to, to kind of get the, the morning rolling. And then from there, it was, it was pretty consistent. So breakfast every day at the training center in the, uh, what they call the canteen was 7 to 8 a.m. And then they'd have a little bit of a break to get ready for the day before training started at 9. And training would go from 9 to 11.30. Okay. Lunch back at the canteen, 11.30 to 12.30. And then they would actually have a period where most people were off. It was... All the athletes had between 12.30 and 3 off. They would take naps. They could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Ended up being a good time for me to either get my own training in or, or work with, with other athletes that weren't actually scheduled. And then the afternoon training went from 3 to 6. So it was basically a, a split shift. The athletes would train sometimes three days, uh, sorry, three times per day, mm-hmm. morning, mid-morning and then afternoon wow that's quite the workload yeah it was it was intense the the volume is extremely high which was something that i had to to try and manage and and get used to as well right and when when you're working with these athletes and they're used to all this volume what what did you have to kind of tweak when you went in or was there anything you needed to change yeah i think the, the approach, I, I quickly found the approach had to be different in terms of what was what was planned for the day would normally be dictated by how they felt and, and how they were coming in. I, I made programs and made plans and tried to, to be as systematic with things as I could, but yeah. really you had to be, you had to adapt and you had to adjust based on what came in day to day and, and how they were feeling because in, in a lot of it too was the communication between the coaches was was tough because I couldn't speak I didn't I don't speak fluent Mandarin so I didn't always know what the coach had planned for that day so sometimes I would have a, a certain idea of what I wanted the training to look like for that that day and they'd come in having been crushed earlier in the morning or yeah. having done a really hard training session the day before whatever it was so really trying to be as adaptable and, and flexible as I could to kind of meet the athletes with what whatever they needed on a day-to-day basis right and I think that's you know an approach that you can take a lot of places especially with with gen popular sorry general population as well because you can have the you know plan out the best program but if you know that person's coming into you pretty wiped you've got to adapt from there right absolutely yeah yeah so it's the same it's the same idea as you know now back home when i have i have some of my adult clients you know they may come in after a, a stressful day of work or fight with their spouse or you know kids are kids were up all night whatever right. it may be it's the same same idea as you just got to kind of go with the flow and and adjust and adapt to what's best for them yeah yeah that's the the hallmark of a good coach i'd say but um yeah 
you mentioned something there just a second ago about the language barrier, and that must have been tough. So how did you uh, how did you go about trying to you know come up with a solution to that? Yeah, it, it was tough. Luckily, they had a translator for me, so they were they were really good about providing everything I needed. But they had a translator there for me who was with me. I would say about seventy five percent of the time okay. during during training. So that was he was obviously a huge help. And then I, I actually ended up taking Mandarin classes while I was there. So just just to again, so I could I could fit in better and I could start to learn the language and it was cool because as soon as I started taking Mandarin, the athletes got super into trying to teach me new words and test my my knowledge and, and figure out if they could help me out with it. So that was that was a big thing in terms of connecting and really bonding with the athletes was once they saw that I was interested in, in actually learning their language, they I think I was much more accepted and much more uh, I had much more camaraderie amongst, yeah. amongst the athletes. I think that's a great way to go about building relationships too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was huge because again it's it's hard when you're, you know, you're the, the new guy and the, the foreigner and people are oh, definitely a little bit skeptical of me when I first started. But as soon as they realized I was, I was trying to be, you know, trying to fit in and trying to do the best I could to, to be one of them and be a part of the team, I think it, it was a game changer. Yeah. Well, it all goes back to the, you know, the old saying that Mike used to say, right? That's right. You know, nobody cares how much you know. Exactly. So they know how much you care. Exactly. exactly. So, uh, lesson right there. Absolutely. So, overall, what were your like early experiences uh, with athletes and kind of building that relationship? How long would you say it kind of took you to kind of get settled in and get into a kind of you know your own kind of role there? Yeah, it, it was interesting with the the athletes themselves. They're very. They're, I think Chinese athletes in general are very disciplined and, and obedient I would say is in terms of they very hard working and they'll also do pretty much whatever you say so yeah. you tell them to jump they're gonna they'll they'll ask how high they they want to please the coach they're very that that's just how they're brought up and and how the system is is run over there I think the biggest issue with with buy-in and kind of getting settled in was with both the sport coaches and the other strength conditioning coaches that I was I was working with and I was in, in charge of over there. That was a little bit more difficult. Just again, they were they're grown ups. They've they've been around the block, and some of them, particularly the sport coaches, were already very successful in their own right. They had, a lot of them were former athletes who had won gold medals and had you know taken taken athletes and, and teams to the highest level in the Olympics. So they were already very established and very successful in their own right. So I came in as, again, as the new guy, as a foreigner. So it took a little bit of time for them to to completely buy in and, and, and trust what I was doing. But I think, I, I, again, it was just me showing them that I cared about the welfare of, of their athletes and I wanted everyone to be successful and it wasn't it wasn't about me it wasn't a, a show of how you know knowledgeable or, or smart I was but I was I really just did everything I could to to help them in every way possible and, and it definitely took some time but you know it, gradually they started to to buy in more and 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 uh, it ended up being a really positive working experience so that's great yeah it can be very challenging going in as an outsider like that especially when they are so established themselves, right? And then from there, sure. it's just kind of trying to earn their trust. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. And just out of curiosity, what age were the athletes? Like, what were the age ranges there? It The ages ranged. It was actually the, the youngest athlete I had was 12, and wow. the oldest who I had was 33. Okay. And the 33-year-old was actually retired. He had retired and then come back. So he was... He had won uh, multiple gold medals in swimming, and he had, he was very successful. But ended up retiring for a couple of years. Was actually working as a coach at the facility, and then 
they needed them again for the China games. So they they recruited them. I, actually, when I got there, he was a coach, and then gradually transitions back into to training as an athlete. So the the training centers though they'll they'll recruit kids as young as eight years old. Wow. And it's it's pretty interesting because some of my athletes had left their families and been in these training centers and in training schools, which they live at and they go to school at and, and full-time athletes since they were eight years old. Wow. So the, the, the burnout was pretty high. Yeah. You know, you'd have, you'd have 18, 19 year olds talking about or thinking about retiring. And it was definitely something to, to get used to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. That's a, that's a huge commitment, especially for a kid. So, so young. Yeah, yeah. So it it was interesting having a lot of these kids really were raised in a training center and raised by by coaches and yeah. you know would see their own families only a couple times a year. So the the relationships with the athletes was was very interesting in that a lot of a lot of times they kind of looked at you looked to you as like a a parent figure as well. Oh, definitely. You know, as soon as as soon as that trust was built. Yeah. So it was a. It was a big responsibility. Now, with the athletes training for the Olympics, they're not getting any sort of compensation, right? They so they are. It was, it okay. was interesting, I'm, and I'm not sure how that works legally. I guess you would say, in, or, or in other countries, but but these guys were actually being paid to train, okay. and it was it was based on a scale. So essentially, the longer you were at the training center, the more money you made, and they could. I believe they could cut the athletes at any time. So if an athlete didn't perform or or was injured for an extended period, they could be released by the facility. And and, and while at the facility, they were also getting a free education. So okay. they were going to school there. So it was a big deal for, for an athlete to be, or for a kid to be selected to, to one of these training institutions. Yeah, that seems... Uh... It seems like the NCAA model, but the kids actually getting paid. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 similar, except I guess better in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So kind of getting away from the training aspect uh, and transitioning into the like more social uh, aspects of your trip. What were some of the uh, the social differences you noticed early on compared to what you were used to back in the U.S.? Boy, there was, there was a lot of them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one one huge thing that stuck stuck out to me was that a ton of people smoke over in China. Right, it's very very common for for people to smoke, including coaches and athletes. Oh wow! So it was it was interesting. I remember going by one of the weight rooms. We had a weight room that was outdoors, and seeing one of the the strength coaches who I was working with, no shirt on outside smoking and just yelling into the window at his athletes you know <laughs> instructions on, on what to do wow um so that was that was a big one the other one just i mean the crowds right there's so many so many people in china so everywhere you go is super crowded whether it's the grocery store or the train station the you know wh whatever it may be people are you're jam-packed like sardines everywhere you go, yeah. which can be can be stressful. It can be tough. Definitely, definitely. And how did you adjust to that? Because, you know, there's different social rules depending on what country you're in. Like, you know, for example, when people are getting on a bus or a train, in some countries people will wait for people to get off. And then in other countries, everybody is just like a mad rush to get on and off at the same time. So. Definitely, yeah. So, so China fits into that mad rush <laughs> uh, category for sure. It was, yeah, it was wild. That and that was actually a big adjustment. Was getting used to. I, I'd be in the grocery store waiting in line, and I'd have an old woman just come and completely sideswipe my carriage, and it, you know, cut me in line. And that right. was, that was definitely took some some adjusting to get used to. In fairness, it kind of sounds like market basket on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's true. Market basket in Somerville is, is the exact same way. It's actually quite similar. If you want the, the Chinese experience, just go to a market basket. Yeah. <laughs> just like 67-year-old Portuguese ladies <laughs> elbowing me, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so how, how was... was sorry, go ahead. No, so that was that was, uh, that was definitely a, a big one that stood out to me was is the crowds and the, the rush. And that's really... It's funny, like, 
I remember someone explaining to me that that's that's the only way you get things done in China because there's so many people. You have to be very aggressive and very vocal. So so another example is when they order something in restaurants, they will yell across the restaurant or you know snap their fingers from across the room in order to get the the waitress's attention. But and it's not done in a rude way. It's just that's how you. That's how you get noticed. That's how you get things done. Yeah. When there's that many, that many people. So. Yeah. What's interesting to me from that, when you bring that up, is that, like in the U.S., when we go out to eat, where, you know, we've certain social rules, and if you'd done that in a restaurant, you'd probably be kicked out. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like, absolutely. you know, in society, when you're trying to climb the, uh, well, not the social ladder, but like your, your professional ladder, you have to be aggressive in how you kind of go about you know, furthering your career. But then when we go out to eat, we totally flip the switch to this, you know, do no harm type approach. So. Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very aggressive. Another thing, just, just speaking of the dining is it's all family style, which I love. So they would hot pot is, is the big thing over there. So whenever you go out to eat, instead of getting your own plate with your, in your own, your own meal, yeah. you pick food for the table. So, you can get some definitely get some interesting things to eat that way, but it was it was a great way as far as community building and you know the tables were all circular, so you could you could see everyone, you could talk to everyone, which was I, I always thought was pretty cool. How uh, how are they on the the phone aspect regards like you know having the phone out all the time like in the U.S. Having yeah, oh the phone yeah so. If you can, if you can imagine it being worse than the U.S., <laughs> it, it, it was, um, which is surprising because they don't have, they don't have Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Those things are all all blocked for the most part That's in right. China. But they do have they do have WeChat, which is basically a a, a version of of instant messenger, which everyone over there uses. Okay, and they love being on their phones they love taking pictures of themselves and their food and everything else around them so the phones were constantly out i was i got into a few battles with with athletes and coaches about no phones in the weight room and and things like that so definitely very very into their technology over there yeah yeah that's interesting i I totally forgot that they had they have a lot of the western sites blocked yeah i forgot that yeah, yeah. So YouTube, again, Facebook, Instagram, Google. There's ways around it, but most most of them do not have have access to that stuff. So I was I was lucky enough. I got a VPN, which is a, a virtual protected network. Before I went over there, mm-hmm. which which allowed me to get a lot of the access to a lot of those sites. And you could actually go to Hong Kong and and get a VPN, but. Yeah, I don't know why. A lot of people just just hadn't done that yet, so um, so they didn't have access to all those things. Yeah, I think it's uh, it, there's a little bit of fear in that aspect of things too, because I think if you you know start doing those things and uh, it's kind of not discouraged, but almost kind of talked down to the point where you shouldn't be doing it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It was it was kind of a gray area of of what you could have and and what you couldn't. I was always somewhat ready for my computer to just be completely shut down based right. on you know, <laughs> yeah. someone from the government realized that, that this foreigner is, is on Google right. and, and just goes completes me, completely shuts me down. But uh, luckily that, that did not happen. So Nice. And when you were interacting with people one-on-one, you know, at the grocery store or, you know, going out maybe for a drink and stuff, what were, what were the rules when it came to like talking to people and, you know, how did that differ from back home? It was yeah, it was interesting. The I, I, one thing I noticed definitely that the women took a back seat a lot more in as far as conversations and things were involved, which again I guess was a is a, a cultural difference. Not and not really in a completely negative way. It just they they seemed a lot less vocal for the most part. Right. In terms of of. It was kind of a, a hierarchy of where you know the men would speak and then maybe the woman would would follow up. There was also an, an interesting seating arrangement. So when you'd go to 
I went to a couple of, of dinners with high level officials from the, the training staff and and people from the government and things like that. And there was there was always a very interesting seating arrangement where the 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 most senior person or the the most VIP they would always call them the VIPs would sit at one end of the table and they'd strategically place everyone else around them to the point where they would they would specifically point out exactly where they wanted me to sit and and then <laughs> if you know figure out kind of figure out everything from there so right interesting so you you had a, a predetermined seat you never really got to choose your seat i guess no 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 i was i was completely uh they pointed to a chair and i went i went <laughs> you know the drill <laughs> very obedient yeah like a dog just get, get in your seat and shut up right pretty much I remember uh, seeing one of your your updates. I'm not sure if it was while you were still in China or maybe afterwards, but it was a story about you getting on a on a bus, I think, and I think the bus driver had shouted at you. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> yeah. So so that was it was right before my first trip home. So I was there for I believe I was there for six or seven months before I got to come home for a visit. I, I'd get I get two week visits every once in a while. And I had gone into, so I was getting ready for the plane ride home. So I went to a bookstore to, to get a book for the flight, which required me to, to get on a bus and navigate getting into the city and figuring out how to get to this bookstore. So that in itself, going to the bookstore was a complete, complete mess. But I eventually got there. I got, I got my book and it was on the way back. I, again, I thought I had this, this bus system all figured out. I ended up taking the the right bus in the wrong direction, so oh, the no. bus was headed away from the training center, which I didn't realize until two or three stops into the ride. So I was, right. it was it was it was late at night, and I realized we were going the wrong way. So I I got up to ask the bus driver, you know, can you can you are you going to head back the other way or whatever? So I was standing next to the driver and. And trying to get his attention and, and communicate that I was on the wrong bus and needed to head back. Yeah, and he did not like that very, <laughs> very much at all. So eventually, he stopped the bus right on the side of the road and, and just got up and started swearing at me and and saying all sorts of things. And it was funny. I, again, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but right. everyone on the bus was just wide-eyed and, and looking at. <laughs> And uh, and he opened up the door, and I said, "All right, that's I guess this is my stop." Yeah. So I, just, I got <laughs> jumped right out, and and had to navigate the way home from there. Wow. But yeah, yeah, it was yeah. crazy. That's a, that's a challenging situation in a foreign country, not knowing the language, and kicked exactly. off the side of the road. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thankful it didn't end up in a, a walked up abroad situation, <laughs> yeah. which, which luckily never happened. So I avoided that. That's good. That's good. So transitioning back to the the gym itself and training the athletes. We have developed a culture here in the U.S. where kids are training from an early age. What is the training experience like in China compared to what maybe you know middle school, high school, or college kids are going through over here? Yeah, it's it, it's interesting because I think one of the one of the big things I I've thought about a lot since being immersed in that culture is the the difference between in the states we have the in, in the West, I guess we have this long-term athletic development model. Right. In the, over there, it's it's almost the complete opposite in that they specialize extremely early in in their sport. So they'll actually do, in some cases, they'll do genetic testing on kids to figure out, you know, what what height they're going to be and and what body type they're going to be, and sort of filter them into certain sports and certain disciplines based on that. Because they start so young training, right? Which, which is interesting because when when you look at it again, their team sports is not that aren't that successful and, and aren't that popular in in China. I mean, they have team sports. I was I had I was lucky enough to have the volleyball team and the basketball team and and a few others, some soccer players, but really the the sports that they're successful at are, are primarily individual sports like table tennis, badminton, diving, fencing, things like this. So it's 
it's an interesting approach is is in terms of their ultra focused on specializing extremely early and spending huge amounts of time doing one specific thing over and over again right and that's why the so that the repetition and the the volume of training was huge and, yeah. it, and it was it was interesting because i'll never forget like we had a team of Olymp- olympic weightlifters in the weight room one day and very successful one of one of the the best under i think he was under 20 junior olympic weightlifters in china and i was giving them i was throwing out lacrosse balls for us to do some some foam rolling before a session and throwing them throwing them the ball like they couldn't catch the ball they just really? they, they had no no coordination no hand eye coordination they hadn't and you know watching them do things like throw med balls or or try and skip was was sometimes eye-opening in right. terms of, you know gr- these great athletes and highly skilled but didn't necessarily have the the fundamental background that i think w- we we strive for our athletes here in the states to have yeah that's crazy did you at any point try and like you know tactfully say hey it might not be a bad idea to let these kids do more than one sport <laughs> i did I, exactly I, I did and that that was something that Luckily, we 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 got them to be a little more open-minded too. Yeah. It's in terms of, again, these guys trained. It was it was six days a week, three times a day, almost all year round. They had a they had a holiday for Chinese New Year. So, again, burnout and and boredom and things like that. I think definitely came into play. Yeah. And I and I think the coaches felt it too because a lot of the sport coaches. You know they're responsible for filling this time with drills and you know skill practice and and I'm sure they felt the pressure to you know to 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 vary it up at at certain times. So one thing that we we discussed a lot was just having the athletes on say Friday afternoon or or, or Saturday morning is was going out and and playing soccer. They had this this beautiful field right in the middle of the complex and a lot of the athletes love soccer right you know it's it's uh kind of the the world sport so they would they'd go out there and it was it was fun to see again like the weightlifters would play the badminton players or the or the table tennis players and they'd have these little team competitions where they just go out and and really it was fun to see them be kids and just run around and goof around and play sport where it wasn't very serious and wasn't as as strict as their normal training routine was yeah i could see just incorporating something like that a little bit more often for those kids where they would probably not burn out as quick slash uh just kind of remain in that program longer because when you're just doing that one thing over and over and over for such a long period of time it's just it can take a huge toll absolutely yeah yeah and it it, you could see it too it it really kind of as you know, as successful as they are, it it took the joy out of it. I think a lot of times because it really, for a lot of these kids, it it became their full time job. Again, yeah. as as young as eight years old, they went from being a an eight year old kid to a full time gymnast, and, right. and and their life revolved around training and and everything that that was involved with that. So definitely, it was it was nice to see them again have that kind of have that experience of of being kids and and just having fun whenever they could yeah and i think what's crazy kind of relating back to what you said about how they can be cut at any time if you're an eight-year-old you've been there four years and that's all you've known you've done that one thing and you're Mm -hmm. cut at 12 years old you've lost that chunk of your life you know yeah yeah it's true you you lose your your identity and i think i think you see that i mean we see that too and I'm, i'm sure you do as well like know college kids here in the states will will graduate and again they've played whether it's hockey or or football whatever they've played it their entire life and it's kind of this this awkward transition phase where they're like well what's what's next like what do i what do i do with my life and and there was certainly a lot of that where i'd have discussions luckily when some of the athletes did speak english and were able to communicate just some of the anxiety and and stress they felt about like you know i've i've gone through multiple injuries and i'm kind of 
a fringe player, you know, probably not going to make it to to the Olympics or, you know, if I don't win a gold medal this China Games, I, I have a good chance of being cut from the team and and kind of trying to help them and figure out like what are what are their options like what do you what do you do next? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a tough situation to be in, and especially because you are basically like a father figure to a lot of these kids too. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, it was it was cool in that they, and and I think part of it was me being a foreigner that they felt comfortable expressing these things to me and and, and talking about those types of things to me because again I, I tried really hard to show that I cared about them more than just them winning a gold medal I wanted them to be to be healthy and I wanted them to you know have have a sense of joy and, and actually enjoy the, the training that we're going through and and I think part of the culture in China is it's very very stoic in a sense that there's not a lot of emotion and, and not a lot of support shown sometimes by by the culture coaches and that's again it's it's not in done in a mean-spirited way i just think that's that's part of society over there and it's it's part of the training culture it's you're you're expected to to show up and train through injury and not really say say anything about you know your your feelings or your concerns and and in some ways, they you know it's it obviously works. It's they're very successful at at certain sports, but in other ways, you you see the flip side of it is very very tough on some of these young kids. Yeah, and I think when whenever we watch the Olympic Games and a Chinese athlete uh, who is young wins a medal, you can see that that has been in the works for years upon years. But you can also kind of tell the toll it's taken on that person too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it was interesting, like watching. I, I I spoke with a guy named uh, Rhett Larson, who was a he was a coach at Exos, and he was over there and got to work with the the Olympic volleyball team, the women's volleyball team that won gold medal in Rio. Okay. And he said that he he told the story of of when they were playing Brazil. Every time Brazil would score a point in volleyball. They, the players would have this dance that they would do, like this celebratory dance they'd do, and they'd all hug and cheer and yeah. and have a lot of fun with it, as opposed to his team, when the Chinese athletes scored a point, they would politely clap and, and then go sit down and right. you know not, <laughs> not show any emotion, which which I think, again, it's, it's interesting because it, it definitely works in some regards. Like when you think of a sport like diving, to be that – laser focused and that stoic I think helps in big time pressure situations like walking up to the to the diving board and and having to execute a, a flawless dive with with a gold medal on the line right they they thrive in those situations but then again you, you see it kind of suck the life out of out of some people on on the opposite end of that yeah yeah definitely it's fascinating to observe the differences between different cultures and you know what's accepted in in some countries and 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 not accepted in others right and your example there for brazil and china that was that was a good example and i uh you know i can't imagine playing a sport but and not having some sort of like oh this is fun type outlet you know yeah yeah it's i i know i felt and i felt the same way and you know we're used to you know you 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 and rugby and I grew up playing basketball and, and football, and those are kind of the things you you remember, right? right? From from when you're playing growing up, is the you know you remember the bus rides and the camaraderie and exactly celebrating when you, you scored a goal or whatever. And, um, and and don't get me wrong, they they certainly have that they have that aspect too. Like the athletes, they they all live together in dorms. And they all ate together in the cafeterias, and they were always, you know, they were joking around, they were playing games. But when it come came time to training, it was, again, dialed in, laser focus, very, very serious with, yeah. with uh, their execution and, and everything they had to do. Yeah, I think I think it's highly admirable in one respect, but also from the standpoint of what age they are, I think just working in some things where the pressure is taken off now and again would be beneficial but again it's kind of a cultural thing you know yeah yeah for sure and it was it was cool you know talking getting to talk to some of the other foreign coaches like i mentioned 
Rhett Larson, who was he was actually working in Beijing, but he would have his some of his his athletes do dance routines. So he would he downloaded whatever the the game was called. It was a uh, Dance Dance Revolution. Okay. And he had he had actually he would have his athletes do that. So if if someone was I think it was the the rule was if someone was late to a training session or late to a to a meeting or whatever, they would have to choreograph this dance and and do it in front of the entire team. And, <laughs> and yeah, and it sounded like a it, you know it was a great idea because yeah. it, it really did it. When you're in that team environment, like you want that that camaraderie and and you. Yeah, you, you want to make the, the journey as as fun and as memorable as you can for again for a lot of times it's young athletes you're dealing with. So yeah, that's uh, that, that's a great actual uh, idea to incorporate that, especially with a program that uh, doesn't have a whole lot of fun to it, right? So exactly, yeah, yeah. If you could sum it up, down, what was the biggest lesson you learned in your time in China? Wow. It's a big it, ask, I know. It, it's a big ask. Yeah, <laughs> I think. I, I, I think it's you know I learned to work with being part of a being part of a team and realizing that there's a bigger picture involved. I think was really important when I was in China because again injuries were very common. So learning to work closely with the physiotherapists and the translators and the sport coaches and you know they had in some cases we had psychologists there. So I mean this was a it was a huge organization and in kind of realizing where the strength conditioning coach fits within that that puzzle right and it's all it's all about doing what's best for the athlete and, and ultimately for them winning a gold medal in the end of the day but trying to again figure out where where I fit in best and, and where I could best you know serve the athletes in, in my role as the strength conditioning coach, whereas sometimes at MBSC, you know, you don't oftentimes have contact with, say, the high school sport coach or, you know, the, the, the other people that an athlete may be working with. It was all very interconnected um, in China, which I, I think is great and it was really important, but it was it, it, it took a while to, to kind of figure out where where I fit into that whole equation. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a journey in itself. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dan, we're going to delve into the pillars of health and basically your strategies or best practices for optimizing each pillar of health. Okay, so let's go ahead and we'll start with sleep, first of all. Sleep is, I think, the the most important thing we can do in terms of of recovery and feeling good and um you know i i listen i again i've been listening to to your show for for a while now so i think a lot of mine will be similar to some of the other guests but i have i bought you know blackout shades i bought a sleep mask i have magnesium spray um so i've just in really since since going to china is when i had to adjust my sleep because the obviously the time time change and everything like that was yeah. was so uh so dramatic it, it really kind of threw me off but that's when i got really really into sleep and an awesome book i read is was sleep smart by sean stevenson okay. if, if you haven't read that it's a, it's a really good book that really highlights the importance of it but yeah for me i i mean I basically just try and have the room as dark as I can, as cool as I can. I sleep with a fan every night just to have a little bit of, white of noise. that white, the white noise going on. Yep, I've done things like I have the Flux app on my computer and yes. on my cell phone, love it, which takes out the blue light. I have I have the blue light blocker glasses, which I look completely ridiculous in. But I, <laughs> as soon as I've tried to make it, as soon as I get home, I just I pop those things on and and get set because I, we, we all know you just feel so much better after a after a night of sleep and how how long a day can be when you're you're you're, you're tired and you're exhausted after a, a rough night of sleep so that's definitely the number one number one thing i i think for my my own personal health is is trying to get a good night's sleep yeah and i think it's it's good that you touch on all the points because it's not just one thing you know it can be the dark shades or the black eyed shades 
you know, and even the small measure of putting on Flux on your computer, like even yeah. if you have to get on there and do something real quick, it's not going to jolt you back into or jolt your brain back into life and then make it tougher for you to fall asleep. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's always going to be times where, you, you know, you have to do something late at night, whether it's on the computer or there, you know, the, the, there's something on TV you might want to watch. It's uh, so, so you, you got to, again, you got to adapt and, and adjust to, to make it as realistic as possible. But I think just having as many, as many chips in your favor as you can to, to start off is, uh, is ultimately what, what, what helps you the most. Definitely. Um, tell me real quick about the magnesium spray. Yeah. So the, the magnesium spray is actually something I got from the book sleep smarter and he, he highly recommends it. He says magnesium is one of the most deficient minerals in, in human beings. So most of us are, are deficient in, in magnesium. So I simply, I went on online and, and ordered, I think it was off of Amazon. It cost about 15 bucks, just a, a magnesium spray that again, about 15 minutes before bed, I just spray all of my body, maybe 10 sprays, um, you know, kind of rub it in and it absorbs right into your skin. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, I don't actually know the science of how it works, but it's, it's supposed to increase the, the, the quality and the, the, you know, the quality of sleep you get. So it's, okay. uh, it's something I played around with. And even if, again, even if a lot of these things like might be placebo, I think right. it's, it's helped either way. So, you know, ultimately the goal is to get a, a better night's sleep and it, it's one of those, one of those things that I, I think has worked. However, it, however it's working, it's, it seemed to work for me so far. So yeah, that's good. That's good. I'll definitely look into the magnesium spray. It's uh it can't hurt, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although any little thing I think you can, you can do, uh, again, to, to kind of stack the, the deck in your favor is, is, is going to be beneficial. Definitely. Definitely. Cool. So compared to sleep, then stress is on the other end of the equation. How, what's your strategies again for dealing with stress? And this can be, you know, everyday life stress, or maybe it's just a hectic day or a long day in the gym. How do you go about that? Yeah, I, I've tried to again, kind of on a similar page of the 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 flux and and things like that is trying to shut down, give myself I kind of like the bookends, right? So like trying to protect the beginning of the day, where that's the first. 15 or 20 minutes and then the last the, the the end of the day whether that's the last half hour hour whatever it can be so when i was in china i really got into to meditation i started off with the uh shoot i can't remember the the app name it's a very common one i think you, you might actually use do you use a, a meditation app so I have uh, headspace and headspace. yeah yes yeah that was the one yeah that was the one i was thinking of because I know I've, I've heard you talk about it on the podcast before, but but I had uh, I started off with Headspace and then I, I transitioned to a free app which is called Insight Timer, and it's it's great because it's there's like thousands of meditations in there. It's, there's there's guided meditations. There's you can listen to just sounds, whether it's white noise or the sound of rain or, or whatever it may be. But can you um, just say that again? What is the Insight Timer? Yeah, it's called Insight Timer. Okay. And yeah, there's, so it's, it's great. It's a free app. There's there's thousands of of meditations on there. You can choose based on how much time you have. So as short as th- I think they have like three minute meditations to you know all the way up to to an hour or so. But I generally try to use that again. With one of the bookends, either first thing in the morning if I have time, or last thing right before bed. In in generally about ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, at most with with the meditation really does has done a lot of i've seen a lot of positive benefit from that for sure awesome um so trying to stay as consistent with that as i can and then i think the other one is just just reading reading's been uh something that has always made me very relaxed and and kind of loosens me up so i try to fit in at least 15 minutes of of reading some point in the day I, I i typically tend to do that somewhere in the middle of the day if i have a gap between groups and between clients i'll try and find a just a quiet spot whether it's 
the staff room or, or my car or whatever it is and, and just sit, chill out, read a good book. And, uh, and that's kind of huge. I just, just day to day, you know, managing this, the stress of, uh, everyday situations. So, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a nice approach. And I like the, the reference to the, the bookends. That's, that's basically, you know, for a lot of people and especially coaches included, that's when we have some time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's, it can be, you know, it's such a game changer to start off. Like I, I totally noticed the difference when I start off the day with a, again, a quick, with quick meditation, maybe 10 minutes first thing in the morning, you know, before I, I go into the gym, it's, I feel those first couple sessions or the first couple groups, whatever it is, I'm, I'm much sharper. I'm much, much more engaged and relaxed and, the, from there the day just kind of rolls on and, and everything seems a little bit better and then the same idea you kind of using it at the end of the day I feel like I definitely notice a difference in, in terms of sleep I'll, I'll oftentimes just pass out I, I do a lot of the meditations on the floor just lying on the floor next to my bed Yeah. and uh, I'll, I'll just wake up and you know the meditation will have ended and I, from there I'll just roll into bed and um, it, it certainly has, has been beneficial for me awesome awesome I like it all right. Uh, when it comes to your exercise, how many? What's the the plan regards your strength work, maybe, and your conditioning? How do you go about structuring that? I I try to stay consistent with at least three lifts per week. It's um, you know it can definitely be challenging to to fit them in, but I typically have at least an an hour of of time where I can I can sneak in a lift during the day, and I, I I've tried. When I was younger, I think I did a lot longer in terms of a lot longer lifts and probably a lot more than I do now. So I now typically tend to give myself just an hour and limit it at that. And I feel like it's kind of that idea of, you know, work expands to the amount of time you have. So I I still get a lot done. I can accomplish a lot in a shorter window of time. And that, that way I'm not, it doesn't drag into and take up too much time during my day. But yeah, typically I try to get three whiffs in per week. And really I, I still follow the, the athlete program that we run at MBSC. So, you know, I, I'm still trying to get cleans and deadlifts and chin ups and single leg squats and basically just trying to hit each pattern at least one, one time per week. Yeah. And, and, and I feel pretty good doing that. And then, I've broken up my conditioning onto the other two days. So I'll, I'll do my conditioning. Typically, if I lift, I'll try and lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and do conditioning either Tuesday, Thursday, or Saturday. And that's that's generally uh, on the assault bike. I'll do intervals one day, and then some sort of a, a kind of a steady a steady ride maybe once once every week or two. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of keep keep that aerobic piece in there a little bit yeah yeah i love the uh the cardiac output rides the longer rides for podcasts yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah that's it, it's it's uh again it's something i i don't prescribe to a ton of my my athletes but it's i feel like it's definitely it's it's helped me and i've kind of i've grown to love the the feeling of of a long ride on the bike and it's funny when i started doing it i remember it like it just taking forever just looking at the time and <laughs> feeling like it was going on forever but but you're right you pop in a good a good podcast and and the time kind of flies by and you feel really good afterwards so exactly yeah it's a nice little recovery piece yeah yeah for sure awesome all right the uh the daunted task of nutrition what's your method yeah nutrition's nutrition's definitely the tough one i'm I'm starting to get a lot more into this we just ran a a weight loss challenge at mbsc so i've I've really kind of been diving into nutrition stuff more and trying to learn more about it and get better but really just just keeping it keeping it simple i think has been the key for myself personally i i've uh you know that was it i think pollen is the the author of the that book but you know trying to eat real real food mostly plants not too much yeah i i've played around a little bit recently with the the idea of time-restricted eating just because I, I realized I listened to uh, 
I believe it was a Joe Rogan podcast where they were they were talking about that, and I realized that, you know, again as as strength conditioning coaches, you know, you're up, we're up really early, and then sometimes work late at night. So I was I was having my first meal at, you know, sometimes five in the morning, and then right. eating my last meal at, you know, finishing my last meal at nine, nine fifteen at night. So I realized that it was just a huge window where I was, I was eating, and, yeah. and and just so just the last maybe month or so I've, after listening to that that podcast and looking a little bit into, time restricted eating, just just trying to tighten that up a little bit in terms of, I will, I'll now take my first couple of clients or groups in the morning, and eat at, during one of my first breaks, which is typically. You know, it could be 10:30 or 11 in the morning, and then trying to to finish eating the, uh, my last meal of the day earlier at night, so it's not backed up right before I go to bed. Yeah, I think that's another thing. That's it's also I, I feel the difference in sleep quality then, because it, it used to be like I'd I finish my last meal and jump into bed, and you know things would be my my stomach would be growling and I'd be digesting all this this heavy food and. I'm sure that that doesn't add to your sleep quality at all. So that's that's one thing with as far as nutrition that I've recently started to to play around with. It's uh, it's a challenge when you finish so late, right? Because it you want to go home and get some dinner, and yeah. then there's not much turnover time. It's like, all right, I finished my dinner, hop into bed. Uh, right. You know, because if you wait longer, you just stand up later. So exactly, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of picking your picking your battles a little bit, but. I think just, I mean, trying to be as organized as I can, like having, you know, making food ahead of time so that I'm not getting home and then having to cook and just adding that extra time on top of it. So yeah, trying to, trying to be as organized as I can in terms of I get home, I know what's for dinner, it's, it's ready for me, you know, I, I heat it up real quick and then uh, I, I'm able to finish it. And also trying to eat, I've typically been trying to eat smaller meals at at dinner as right. well so like a bigger breakfast maybe a bigger lunch um, but smaller at night for the for the same reason I think I sleep quality it it, it definitely helps with that as, in terms of you're not your body's not trying to digest this real heavy meal right before you go to bed yeah yeah definitely it makes a difference all right yeah um, I will say like what you kind of referenced there regards schedule you know I would eat maybe a Finish dinner at nine thirty, say for example, and then I'm not eating until maybe eleven or twelve the next morning. So, yeah, you know, not purposely doing an intermittent fast, but it's kind of ending up that way. And then the same post lunch, you know, because I'll take evening clients, and then it's it's pretty late before you eat again. So it's kind of it's kind of happening whether you plan it that way or not. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's that's what I've tried to to stress with with some of the clients who are who are asking about nutrition information or, or you know people looking for weight loss tips is when I when I tell them about you know this time restricted eating I try to make it so it's not as as fancy sounding as fasting or yeah you know time restricted eating I'm, I'm like you know just simply try to finish dinner earlier and, right. and not snack as as much late at night and and maybe push back breakfast until after you've done you know your first whatever big big task of the day whether it's you know, if they have kids, I'm like, all right, you know, get up, get the kids ready for school. It's usually a really busy time anyways. That gives them, you know, maybe an hour or two and then have your first meal of the day. So so trying to keep it as, as simple as you can and not, you know, using big terms like not that it's a big term, but you know, not not talking about fasting or yeah. time restricted eating with with clients, I think makes it more realistic for them and, and makes maybe the buy-in a little bit higher. Yeah, that's true. And definitely the, the words we use when it comes to the people we coach definitely have an impact too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Dan, that, thank you so much, my man. This has been amazing. Yeah. Thanks, John. It's, it's, uh, it's awesome to be on again. I, I listen to the podcast all the time and, and you guys have done an awesome job with this. So yeah. I really appreciate having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate the, the, the feedback. And uh, before you head out, just uh, update everyone on any social media where you're located online. Yeah, so I'm on Facebook, again, as, just as Dan McGinley. Instagram, Dan McGinley 617 I do not have a Twitter currently, so I'm working on that. I also have a blog that I started, danmcginley.com. 
and uh, so those are the, the the big places you can you can find me. And on the blog, have you uh, written a little bit about your experience in China? Yeah, I have. So I, I actually have to update the blog. I've, I've been slacking with that lately, but hopefully this will this will uh, influence me to, to get back at it. But um, yeah, I have a bunch of bunch of pictures, a bunch of stories on there from China. So awesome. if, you, if you want to hear more about that, that'd be the place to go. That's great. That's great. All right. Thanks for sharing, Dan. We really appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thanks, John. Yeah. And for everybody listening, guys, if you like uh, the content we're putting out there, head on over to iTunes. Leave us a quick little bit of feedback. We would be forever grateful. And until next time, we are out. <laughs>